I'm Helen Karakulak. And I'm Alice Murphy, and this is Overworked But Optimistic, the podcast where we address a new topic every fortnight, looking into the various ways it affects us and consider how we can better manage the many things we like and occasionally don't like to juggle. We're all too familiar with being overworked and aiming to be increasingly optimistic. Whether you're studying, working casually, part-time or full-time, pursuing a career in big picture objectives or just trying to make it through the day, this is the podcast for you. This episode, we're going to be talking about something that shapes and affects the way we interact with one another socially and professionally, and that's gender roles. We're not always conscious of the effects that gender roles have on us, and they're often disregarded as outdated. However, they're very much in play in our lives as students and young adults on and off campus. They linger in the workforce we'll soon be thrust into. This episode, we're going to try and unpack gender roles, the expectations that come with them, how they affect men and women individually, and their impact on industry. What do you think of when you think of gender roles? When I think of gender roles, the housewife and the breadwinner, as a very heteronormative example, but I also sort of think of gender roles in the context of work and the idea that you wouldn't hire a pregnant woman and you don't often see women who are pregnant or family orientated in a lot of leadership roles because they're considered less reliable which is ridiculous because men enjoy time off work just as much as women do (laughs) yeah I think when I think of gender roles it's almost like it's this set of rules about what you should and shouldn't do based on your gender and it's very cis focused and when it comes to gender gender roles in family and relationships as you said, very heteronormative. And very binary and limiting. Oh, completely. That's basically what the definition of gender roles is, the limitations because of your gender. More accurately, it's usually based on biological sex, which is why it is very cis-focused and ignores a lot of gender diversity. I don't think that in 2020, gender roles are the idea that women have to be housewives because we've come so far since the 1950s when that was probably the case. But I think that traditional idea is still lingering in the back of people's minds whether or not it's conscious is a different question depending on who you ask but um, I think that it's this unconscious bias and internalized misogyny. So how did you feel or notice looking back that gender roles affected you growing up? I think the most prominent one that I can think of is when I was in primary school Everyone called me Little Miss Bossy Boots. Me too. And it came from, sometimes it came from my mum. Sometimes it came from teachers. Sometimes it came from other students. But there was a big thing that I was bossy. And you know what? Yeah, I'm bossy. I still am sometimes. I'm a very demanding person. But that's because I know what I want and I'm ambitious. And I think when you're a kid, if you are a girl who loves playing with Barbies and doing hair and makeup, then, oh, you're going to go places as a hairstylist. If you're a little boy who loves to play soccer, oh, yeah, you're going to be great. You're going to be the next David Beckham. Like, they're so encouraging to kids when they fit this already paved out ideal. Yeah, but how often do you see a boy with a Barbie and someone goes, yeah, he'll be a great stylist one day. No, it's, ew, where did you get that? Here's a Hot Wheels car. Exactly. And I think that when I was a kid, being told that I was bossy made me a lot more self-conscious as a teenager because 
when you're a teenager and you're first entering puberty, you're like, oh my God, oh my God, does everyone like me? If they don't like me, I'm actually going to cry. Oh my God, I really hope he likes me. Oh, does he like me? Does she like me? Do all my teachers hate me? Are they going to fail me because I'm annoying in class and I ask too many questions and I'm too bossy? Exactly. That don't be bossy that many women I know got throughout their childhoods, including the two of us, turns into self-consciousness in your teen years where it's like you feel like you can't be a leader because what if they think I'm bossy Mm. but I do not personally I'm sure there are plenty out there but I do not personally know a guy who was told that he was bossy and it had it turn into that same level of self-consciousness yeah what I did hear boys get told when they express the same kind of ambition (laughs) you're such a good leader you're gonna be star of the day Dr. Jill Gould has vast experience and a keen interest in researching gender diversity and providing practical outcomes for organisations and individuals, specifically looking into improving female representation on boards and in executive groups. She's a studious dog lover and a pleasure to chat to. So thanks for joining us, Jill. The first question I have is you have a variety of professional accolades and degrees under your belt, including a PhD from UniSA which led you to win the Graham Arnold Award for the best dissertation in the area of management, corporate social responsibility and international business. So could you please give us a bit of an overview on what corporate social responsibility means and how it's intertwined with gender equality? My PhD is management and HR, but it does talk to corporate governance, which is kind of tied up with the the corporate social responsibility. So essentially, corporate governance, we're talking about making sure that what management do, it it works in the interest of owners, other stakeholders, employees, external parties, and so on. Um, And gender equality is sort of pivotal to that. So the question comes back always to, you know, is gender equality, is gender diversity good for business? And there really is some clear um, research that suggests that not only is gender diversity, is it good for business if it's managed properly, but it's actually really good for corporate governance, for making sure that organisations are doing the right thing. And uh, there's a great quote by Christine Lagarde. She said, if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman sisters, then today's economic crisis would have looked quite different. So her point there is that in terms of corporate governance, having diversity uh, on these really high-level corporate boards, uh, management groups, executive groups and so on, is really important for organisations. And these are, you know, even in addition to any questions of, of equity and so on, there's a clear business case for diversity. Okay, great. Well, as students, one of the things that we're really interested in is how we will be affected by gender equality in management entering the workforce and um, looking at sort of how we learn about it while we're in uni. So as of August last year, the Australian government's higher education enrolments and graduate labour market stats indicated that women represent 58.4% of students in high higher education and outnumber men in higher education completion rates. So with this being the case, what can you say happens after female graduates enter the workforce that leaves them so underrepresented on boards and executive groups? Yeah, and these higher higher groups are clearly something's happening, isn't it? And actually work, workforce representation is actually really, really fascinating. There's a, a government organisation called WGEA, which is Workplace Gender Equality Agency. And they actually provide some really interesting statistics that show that there are gender differences there across industries and they're also across occupations. 
and they work in both directions. So if you think about something like nursing, that's still female-dominated. Construction is highly male-dominated. Overall, these senior roles are even even so still male-dominated, even in some of the industries that we, we consider female-dominated. So there certainly seems to be something happening as graduates leave universities and, and enter the workforce. Just to depress, depress everyone, um, there's actually more CEOs in the ASX, so the largest 200 organisations in Australia, called John, than female CEOs, full stop. Oh my goodness. And that is a depressing I, I statistic. It's time <laughs> to change my name to John. <laughs> well, you know what? That's, some of the women have actually kind of joked about that, saying, well, clearly I need to change my name to John. Um, so, yeah, clearly clearly something's happening, and uh, and that's what my research is trying to, to look at practical ways to try and overcome that. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting and somewhat upsetting <laughs> as well. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> So do you think that the treatment of women in higher education is more accommodating compared to the workforce and that sets somewhat unrealistic expectations for women as we move into the workforce? Um, this is actually a really, a really interesting question because I would actually question whether that's actually the case. The reason why I do that, like questioning whether or not um, a female students in higher education, whether it's actually more accommodating them. The reason I question it is one of my co- uh, colleagues, Carol, Professor Carol Cleary, uh, she and I, we've actually done some research into the experience of women um, in universities. Now, we've looked at both academics and students, uh, looking at their university-specific experience. And what we've done, we've looked at research, we've gone across disciplines, so health research, management research, engineering research, and so on, across all sorts of disciplines, across different countries, but all within the university workspace. And we find there are gender differences there as well, including uh, for students. So there's certainly some academic level differences, but for students there are differences. A couple of examples. There's some research done where they had a piece of work and it was an identical piece of work. The only thing that changed was the name on the top. And that piece of work, when it was produced by a male student, it was seen as more creative and more scientific than that exact same piece of work if it had a female name on the top. So in other words, even in higher education, in the classroom, there is a gender difference between um, uh, male and female students. We're actually presenting some of these findings around the university. But what we've done, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, you said I'm into practical outcomes and Carol's the same. What we've done for each of these pieces of research that we've found, uh, we've provided what we call a small step. So in other words, to overcome that issue of differences in how you assess work, where possible, mark blind. So in other words, don't have the the student's name uh, on the top. In the same sort of way, an identical resume with different different name on top, that resume, if it was given to to people, they were assessed differently. So looking at exactly the same resume, a female undergrad was seen as less competent compared to the male undergrad. And the issue here, um, this was actually US research, the issue here is that the female graduates, uh, undergrads, sorry, were uh, less likely to be mentored and they were less likely to get these kind of research assistant or, you know, teaching assistant sort of roles. Being conscious is the first the first step here, being conscious that perhaps you're taking a gendered lens. Yeah, that's a really good point and it's definitely making me question changing my name. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that uh, with that and uh, female representation in male-dominated industry in general can be traced back to widespread traditional gender roles? Not sort of the gender roles per se, it's attitudes 
to those gender roles and also structures that actually exist in organisations. And I'll, I'll just explain what I mean there. So I sort of divide this into two parts. In the past, there were actually some roles that weren't available to women. So organisations, they would just say, sorry, we don't hire women for that particular role. It was quite overt, quite explicit. And we call that first generation gender bias. So just an example that I came across with that, which actually wasn't that long ago, and surprisingly, it was in an organisation that actually were quite accommodating to women. But they had a, um, I was a management accountant in that in that organisation. I wasn't in, in education there. It was something completely different. And there was a particular role that they didn't put women into. It was um, a regulatory role and there were often it was often confrontational with angry clients being told to do things they didn't really want to do. And so they were actually worried that a woman would feel intimidated and that's why they didn't want to fill the role with, with a woman. So the question is, is that okay? And the answer is absolutely not. So what do we do about something like that? So in that particular instance, when you design a job, you make it clear that the role includes enforcement and that there can be backlash to that enforcement. So the role's clear. Men and women can both be intimidated. So when you select your, when you want, you're going through the selection process, you make sure you test for resilience for, um, you know, personality traits around whether or not someone's likely to be intimidated. Don't, don't make it a gender thing. You'll, you'll get men and women who can and cannot, you know, be intimidated who are, who are right or wrong for this particular role. And then once you actually select a person, regardless of gender, you manage their appointment. So this sort of role needs briefing before they go into the situation. They need a debriefing afterwards. And I would also suggest that from a, a workplace health and safety position that you probably need two people attending. And all of this is regardless of gender. If someone can, can meet those requirements, they can be appointed um, to that particular role. So in those sorts of situations, we need to really question job design and whether we can create a role so that there, there are specific knowledge, skills, abilities. If someone can meet those, you know, what we call KSAs, then they can be appointed regardless of gender. That's what we call first generation gender bias, just saying, all right, don't, don't hire women for those roles. But what happens now is we have what we call secondary generation gender bias and they're the ones that are, are really relevant now because they can be quite subtle and they're very structural. When organisations were designed, men were in the workforce and they generally had a wife at home who would support them um, and clearly that's not, not relevant anymore and it's not what we, what we want in today's society. So we've got this long-standing idea of an ideal worker especially when you come to executive level and, and senior management roles. So the ideal, ideal work is someone, they're available 24-7, they work long hours and they really put work before family and, and anything. But we're smarter than that now. We can design jobs to be flexible. Might surprise people to know that the research is really clear that men like flexibility just as much as women. So we can design jobs with this flexibility in there and try and get away from this ideal worker kind of concept. It's, it's archaic and it's just not necessary. So what I actually do in my classes is I, I actually say to my students, you know, really, really quickly, um, so anyone listening to this, just really, really quickly picture a CEO, you know, in your mind, what, ca what came to mind? And the majority of students will say that they just saw a tall white man in his mid-50s. And this is our unconscious kind of what we, what we think a CEO looks like. So we need to slow our thinking, picture a short woman, someone who's not white, someone in a wheelchair, someone who's younger, challenge all these unconscious biases that we have so that we you know, start to think differently. Yeah, definitely. And when you think about that idea of um, picturing a CEO as women of colour, short, in a wheelchair, um, 
when you think about women in those positions, it's only when you see that that we've sort of started thinking, okay, we can do that. And it's only in the past few years that us ourselves have, Alice and I have discussed this recording previously as well, that through a lot of posts on social media and just um, engaging with new social groups, we've realised that we can do anything because we start to see more and more women that look like us or look Mm. different to us in those positions. Mm -hmm. And I've done a bit of reading on some of the research that you've contributed to as a part of UniSA's Centre for Workplace Excellence, specifically the practices for increasing women's representation in leadership roles. But it was one that identified the trickle-down effect, which found that Mm -hmm. companies appointing women to their corporate boards experienced a spike in women on their executive teams. So this might be a bit of an oversimplification, but would you agree that the trickle-down effect essentially reflects the power of positive female role models? This actually, I love it when people ask me this, this particular question. Um, and you, you sort of, you're half right. But my research was very quantitative. I had, um, so I, had this, I built this database. It had 10 years of data around about 1,300 organisations, these large organisations listed uh, on the Australian Securities Exchange. And so I ended up with about 105,000 individual level observations. It was this really big um, database, big Excel spreadsheet. But as I mentioned, I'm an, an ex-management accountant, so I love my spreadsheet. So the data was publicly available information. And so I used that to, to build this spreadsheet. And I was able to show statistically that there is a, a clear link between female representation at board level in, in one year and then female representation in the executive level the following year and even the year after. So that's why we call it trickle-down effect. So if you increase female representation at a senior level, you see a subsequent increase at the level below um, going going forward. So I also happened to find that in a smaller database, but in the Australian public sector as, as well, uh, that was looking between executive and executive feeder level. So I was able to find it in a, in a couple of different places. So I was able to observe that and see this trickle-down trickle effect. So the question then becomes, well, why does it happen? And it's a great question, which I didn't specifically test. That was out, outside the scope of my PhD. It's sort of a follow-up thing I'd love to do at some point. However, we did look at the research, see why this might, might be happening. And one of the reasons was perhaps women will help other women. And that may or may not happen. There's a um, lot of discussion about whether or not we should actually be even expecting women to help other women, whether it's okay to expect, it, to, uh, to expect this. Uh, why should women have to help other women? So that's, that's one line of discussion. But what I think is really interesting is that we're sort of suggesting here that just having women in senior positions, even if they don't do anything to help other women into senior roles. Just having them there, is, it's likely to send signals to other women either within the organisation or outside the organisation that it is an organisation where women can succeed. And I think that comes back to what uh, what you're talking about here, positive female role model. And the thing that I think is really interesting is that this can happen even if the women don't actively do anything to support other women. And I think that's actually really important here because it's more than just the expectation of saying, well, you've been appointed to a board role, it's your obligation to help other women. Because really, you know, it's probably not. Nice that happens, but it's not really their obligation to do that. And just one example that suggests this is the case. Uh, I actually spoke, I, I did an interview study. I spoke with an executive who was five months pregnant when she was actually hired as an executive. And she said, you know, you could see, you could tell she was pregnant. And she said that sent huge signals about the organisation. She had a lot of people, men and women, 
come to her and say how wonderful they thought it was that she was hired. She was going to be there for a few months and leave for you know a little while. I think I think she took off three or four months and then came back to the organisation. But what she said to me was that it created a really positive organisational culture. The way people viewed the organisation, the way the employees viewed the organisation, it was seen as family oriented. And the men, as I mentioned before, the men really liked that as well. And that leads to loyalty. So they all felt kind of part of a family and they would support each other, which which is a suggestion that, you know, it really does also, it's a completely different topic, but pays for organisations to be, be flexible as well. So I think it's it's really important if we have women in these senior roles, the, the data is very strongly suggesting you'll get increased and a trickle-down kind of effect increases at, at lower levels. And part of this is likely to be because there are signals being sent that uh, this is an organisation that, that values women and women can succeed in these organisations. That's really interesting. It's almost like um, one paves the way for the next in a way, I guess. Um, yeah, that's right. So it, it becomes, it, it's sort of, it's less obvious. She's not the female board member anymore. She's just a board member. That, yeah. That's when I think you, you can say you've got equality when people stop talking about female board members, talk about board members. Yeah, definitely. I think the language that we use has a lot to do with how we view each other. It definitely does. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no worries. I just want to take a step back for a second in terms of that sort of a mix of that and growing up. Mm -hmm. Sport. Yes. Was a huge one for me because since I was about five years old, I've played soccer and growing up in the country. Uh, I was the only girl on the team for many years, Mm. which didn't always go over very well with guys. Particularly, I didn't notice it as much with guys in my team, but other teams, sometimes it crushed me because of the things they would say. And it's, I think you've seen She's the Man, obviously. There's that whole idea that like she can't play because it's a boys team. And then when they get to like the final, um, the final soccer game in the movie, that's like the be all and end all. She um, scores the penalty she, on her boyfriend. <laughs> ex-boyfriend. Um, yeah, ex-boyfriend, because she broke up with him because he was sexist and enforcing gender roles. Yes, but- There you um, go, men. You get broken up. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, following up on your example, there's a moment where they were really, really throughout most of the film, this other team were like adamant, you can't have a girl on your team. Oh my gosh, that's against the rules. You can't have a girl on your team. And then it switched to, oh you think you're gonna beat us because you have a girl on your team those sorts of comments don't just hurt the person that they're aimed at because obviously as like a seven-year-old girl those sorts of comments they crushed me but they also hurt everyone who heard them because it told every boy who heard that 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 was an okay thing to say and that girls aren't as good at sport as boys are and it told every girl that heard that that they're never going to be as good as the boys which isn't true i was never the only girl on my team and i didn't play soccer for very long because i have no physical ability whatsoever and ouch Love you. I trip over when I'm standing still. Um, But when I was in primary school, I did play soccer and I did it because I was like, oh yeah, that'll be fun. Like all my friends are doing it. So yeah, why not? There were three girls on the team and I reckon we like the sides were of seven. We had like nine people on our team all up and three girls. We weren't discouraged to play, but we weren't encouraged either. Sean Sheehy is the Junior Technical Director of the Adelaide Jaguars Women's Soccer Club and is the Director of Swag Soccer Academy. Sean began coaching women's soccer in 2014 and has since coached developing and high-level junior and senior teams. 
His experience in women's soccer led to his creation of SWAG, which is an all-female junior soccer academy driven by the desire to create joy through soccer and provide an accessible pathway for all girls to achieve their goals. Thank you for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Really excited to come on the podcast. So SWAG Soccer Academy promotes that all girls should have access to elite pathways and high-level coaching, which promotes inclusivity and affordability. So do you think that in co-ed teams, girls are weighed down with expectations based on gender roles that prevents them from reaching their full potential? That's a really good question. I think um, there's two ways that they can do it. There's clubs that have female teams and and male teams, and there's clubs where they're co-ed so they, you know, clubs where they mix the girls with the boys. And I think there's sort of two impacts that can have situations that can create. So if you look at clubs where there's women teams and men teams under the one umbrella of a club, what you can see there is they have a tendency to favour, whether it's conscious bias or an unconscious bias, favour resources towards the men's teams, whether it's simple things like training nights, whether it's equipment, resources, coaching, financial resources, all that sort of stuff. We've heard plenty of stories about how the women's team get left to train without light in the, the worst area with no equipment and maybe no coach and sort of piece together. We also see that the clubs with, with, with the women girls are playing with boys. I think there is a sense we hear a lot from players in that in that situation, especially you know around South Australia and different regional zones where there aren't enough people there to play in female only uh, leagues or teams. That girls can end up being sort of typecast and going, we want to put you away from the ball, we want to put you in the back line and just try win tackles, but we're not going to use you to do any attacking play, we're not going to use you, uh, in, you know, we're not going to help develop you, it's sort of like sit there in the corner uh, and let the boys take over, is what we hear a lot. Uh, so what effect can you see that girls playing alongside like-minded girls has on their emotional health compared to those girls who do play in the co-ed teams or mixed clubs where they might not be seen as a priority. Through the involvement of the club and the academy, we hear some really interesting stories and really heartwarming stories, actually. From players and parents, we had a player who came from a situation where they were playing with boys and they've joined the female in clubs. And the, the mum called me actually the next day and just said, like, my daughter is so happy. She feels free. She doesn't have to put on an act. She said when she plays with the boys, she has to put on a performance. She has to put on a mask. And when she's playing with the girls, she said it was like watching a different person. She was free. She got more touches. We were talking to a parent recently. We had a little mini carnival or four side just for, for young female players. And the, and the mum made the mention to the fact that I did say there's a different parent said, you know, my daughter normally gets two or three kicks a game. She went out there and she scored four goals. And she'd never, you know, she'd never done that before. So you see there's a different, uh, they're able to act differently. They're able to act with their peers. They're able to act in a way that, you know, it's potentially you know a little bit more free. I think that there's there's benefits to that. Um, you sort of said the mental and, and and emotional development. I think of just being in that environment where they are allowed to be themselves and they are allowed to not have to act to that maybe hyper aggressiveness that you see in the boys. Not all the time as well. In a lot of instances, yeah, we see the female players. They don't have to put on an act. They don't have to put on a show. They can be themselves, and that comes out through the players and the parents consistently. Yeah, that's brilliant to see in the young players, and I can definitely attest that it's much more fun playing with other girls than it is with all the boys. Uh, What are some key strategies to creating a positive learning environment and social environment to encourage girls to grow and reach their full potential as female footballers? I think there's a difference in the general outlook on on, on why people play sport um, between males and females. So, and it's changing in a positive way. But I think when when boys come into it, there's there's sort of underlying sense of like, oh, I want to make it. I want to I want to be I want to be Ronaldo. I want to be whatever. I want to play for Adelaide United. I want to get paid to play. Like this is something that I can be ambitious towards achieving. This is something that I see as somewhat of a career opportunity with the girls. And again, this is changing because of players like um, you know amazing heroes like Sam Kerr and Caitlin Ford. Some of the female players we've got at the highest level. But a lot of girls when they come into soccer, it's not. I want to be a professional. A lot of them are coming to it. I just want to play sport. And so 
you see when you design a program or you design a team or, you know, working with a team or constructing a squad, I think there's a difference there. I think with boys, a lot of them are out. It can be a sense of, hey, we're here to develop myself. I want to get to, I've got this end point. This is the team I'm using to get there. Again, this is not in all the situations, but we hear it consistently. That maybe what they're looking for with the girls, we sort of, a lot of, and, and, and sort of, um, I guess Alice can attest to this because she's been part of what was some of the, the squads that we've done. Um, but um, the, um, the whole aim is to go, why are you playing? What do you want to come out? Why do you start playing soccer? Why do you start playing sport? And how can we build from there? So we build our teams and squads around the idea of make each other better, tap into this sense of wanting to help one another, learn how to be a good teammate, learn how to work through adversity, learn how to work through success, learn how to you know enjoy the process of development, getting better at something and the confidence that comes from that. We tell a lot of the girls, like, you know, you've proven to us that if you put in the hard work and you dedicate yourself to growing in something, it's something you're passionate about, surround yourself with teammates who are invested in you and teammates who you want to work for, then you've proven to us that you can achieve anything. And then that translates to, to school, to work, to life, to relationships, whatever it is. They sort of work on those life lessons that come from sport. Yeah, absolutely. In your six years coaching women and girls soccer, what is the biggest change that you've seen from when you started out to now in terms of the attitudes of the girls that want to join the club and the attitudes of outsiders towards taking the girls seriously as a team? Is there a difference? Yeah, so I think the biggest the biggest change I've seen is that when I started, if I asked a young player, um, who's your who's your hero? They would tell me Ronaldo, Messi, Cahill, people like that. Now if you ask young players around the scene, who's your favourite player, they'll tell you it's Sam Kerr, Alex Morgan, Caitlin Ford. They've got female heroes. You've seen this massive rise of the W League, of the Women's Super League in England, the National League in America, and the Matildas who have done a fantastic job of just coming out of a World Cup year. And what we found is that this connection to female heroes, I think as a male myself, it took me a while to realize that I took for granted that everyone that I look up to looked like me. You know, I could identify with them. And now we're seeing the power of females having that same opportunity. And it's the biggest change I've seen in the game over the last six years is that females have female heroes and they're empowered through it. And it's amazing to watch. Yeah, that's awesome. We've been talking a lot about positive female role models, especially because we recently Mm -hmm. interviewed Dr. Jill Gould from UniSA's Centre for Workplace Excellence, and she spoke to us about something called the trickle-down effect, which researchers found that companies appointing women to their corporate boards experienced a spike in women on their executive teams. So obviously that research was relevant to a completely different field and demographic, but if the same general principle was applied to sporting and social clubs like SWAG and the Jaguars, do you agree that it has a positive effect on players? Oh, 100%. So I, I can be somewhat of a, of a control freak, naturally. But one of the things that I did find uh, while I was coaching is that I was involved with a separate program and we brought in female coaches. And I sat there and I watched as we did these courses and I, and I looked across and went, wow, these players are responding to these female coaches in a way that they would never respond to me. There's no way I could ever replicate that. They were, I'm watching the relationship go. And there was one of those things where I was thinking to myself, oh, I want to intervene. Like, oh, that's not, that's not how I would do that. That's not what I would do. But then I sort of, you know, had that conversation with myself. I was going, well, you know, let it happen. Don't step in and be that annoying male that goes, actually, no, let me do, let me do it my way, whatever. And sat down and, and, and watched that happen. And you saw this really powerful connection with female players and a female coach. And I looked at that and that's where it really switched flicked for me. And I thought to myself, wow, female coaches are huge. We need to bring that in. We need to replicate that. And now it's what we've seen with um, Swag and, and it's called the NLA Jaguars is that we've, so now we're trying to bring in those female coaches because, again, a lot of females, I think, look up to the coaching and go, there aren't, a lot of, there aren't a lot of coaches that look like me. 
maybe I can't, you know, maybe there's those barriers there. We've brought in female coaches. The players, and Alice is one of them, she's come in and coached with us, and the girls absolutely adore her. And it's an amazing big sister dynamic of it where they connect with her, they see her as a hero and a role model, and they look up to her, which is, you know, she's done a fantastic job there. And now we've got the next generation of girls coming through um, in our under 15 and in our sort of young senior group who are saying, Actually, can I coach as well? You know, how do I how do I do this? And we've actually got two girls have come through. They're fourteen and fifteen years old. Going, hey, I want to be part of the coaching group. I want to help coach younger players because they've seen, you know, through the whole system, they've seen someone do it. They've gone, oh, that's really cool. I want to have that same effect on people, and they're trying to replicate that. So, bringing in females into into leadership positions, we've seen an immediate um, correlation between then young people going, hey, I can be a leader as well. I want to I want to be like that, and I can be like that. And it's been an amazing groundswell uh, from there so I definitely agree that yeah that trickle down effect in terms of young people seeing role models and wanting to emulate them especially role models that look like them I couldn't agree more and it's had a really powerful effect on a lot of young players yeah that's awesome and Alice being one of the first female coaches at Adelaide Jaguars women's soccer club would obviously have a massive effect on the younger girls that she's around is there any advice that you have for boys or girls regarding taking action to pursue their goals and supporting each other regardless of and keeping in mind the gender differences? I think um, for males, it's, yeah, that point of going, what are, you, what are you in it for? What are you there for? What are, what, are you, what are you trying to achieve? If you're trying to achieve personal success, which some people do and no criticism of that, if they're in it to, to, to win themselves, then I think that that's where they can be not privy to the impact or the, the benefits of you know, having all those different views at the table. I think if you're going in and going, I'm a coach or I'm a player and my aim for this is purely to achieve personal success, well, you know, number one, try tennis. Number two, I don't think you'll be privy to those things. I think if you go into it for the purpose of you place a sport because you want to build those relationships with your teammate, experience those special moments, or go through adversity with people that you care about, and same if you're a coach, if you want to watch people develop and grow, not only in a technical, physical sense, but also in a personal sense and an emotional sense, and helping them learn those life lessons they can get from soccer, I think. If you want for those reasons, then as you go along, I think it'll become immediately clear that this is an added way or a benefit to you to achieving that, to going, this is how I can enhance the people lives around me which is what team sport at its heart is all about it's about relationships about wanting to sacrifice for others and wanting to work for each other if you don't have that it falls apart so then if you can elevate females and see the positive effect of that and you know put them in a position of power and put them in a position of, of agency within team structure then you see those benefits and you see that growth and it helps you achieve the goal that you want to achieve i think if you again if you go into it for a solar reason you'll be you won't be privy to that and i think you'll probably you won't get that. For females, it's just simply, you look at Alice as a perfect example of that idea about put all the effort in, put all the passion in, let, let your dedication drive you. But as well along the way, realize that there's going to be moments where you can be a role model for someone else. And if you can do that, if you can plant those little seeds of, of inspiration, of hope and of joy in the people below you as you drive through your journey, well, then you never know what they're going to sprout into. And if you do that, if everyone's got that mindset, then it's going to grow. Um, before we finish up, is there anything else that you wanted to add? <laughs> yeah, basically for the Jag. We're down at West Lakes and we're a female-only soccer club and we are pretty dedicated to not only developing athletes but developing the game, you know, the female game across South Australia and the academy. If you go to swag, swagsocceracademy.com, um, you see there we've got things where we do clinics. We, we go out regionally. Uh, we do camps. We do 1v1 sessions. We do uh, all these sorts of programs that are all female-only, all built around the simple idea of we want to create joy through the game. So we have a wicked bit of fun with that. Um, jump on in, have a look, check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Any females that are thinking about getting involved as a player or a coach, hit us up because we're always keen to learn and get connected to people that are passionate. Thank you so much for answering our questions. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Overworked But Optimistic and thank you to Dr. Jill Gould and Sean Sheehy for coming and talking to us. Follow our social media at OvButOp, spelled O-V-B-U-T-O-P on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and tune in next time.